Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. It's an honor for me to be uh, bringing a message from God's Word to you this morning as Pastor Dan and his family are on vacation. Uh, And as we come to God's Word this morning, I would like us to remember the words of Psalm 19. Uh, Psalm 19 says that the Word of God, the law of the Lord, is perfect, reviving the soul. Reviving the soul. And so let us come this morning to God's Word with the hope that his word will revive your soul and that his word is evidence of grace and goodness given to us by God through Jesus. And it's a sign of his favor upon us. And so with that, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11 and talk about head coverings. Right, I kind of thought that might be the response. Yay! Did you guys even know there's a passage in here about head coverings? There is, and God's word is perfect, and we're thankful. The maker is perfect in his word. So we're going to be reading verses 2 to 16. I don't know the page numbers. Oh, there it is, 958. There's red Bibles in the back, uh, and and I'll give you an instruction. If you use a red Bible, and uh, just leave it on your seat when you're done, and then Gordon, our, our, our handy maintenance guy, takes it, and he puts it in quarantine. Uh, So he has a quarantine area for Bibles. So if you want to use a Bible, just leave it on your chair. Or you could take it home with you if you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible. We'd love for you to have that as a gift. Well, let us come to 1 Corinthians 11 and read God's word for us this morning, starting in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? 
Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, it's good that the last word that we read is that we ought not to be contentious. Lord, not only about these particular matters, but just in life right now, we live in a contentious time, a time filled with strife and discord, both within the church and outside of the church, Lord. Disunity threatens every front for the follower of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that as we submit to these words today, we might be unified knowing that Christ is good and knowing that his word to us here is for our good and for his glory. Help us now that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. No, I will not. No, I will not. That was the look on my daughter's face when we stood up that day, we were in sunny Florida. It was day two of our spring break trip, and we were about to enjoy one of the few spring training games that happened this year to watch our favorite team, the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, we were surrounded by snowbirds who seemed more interested in quiet conversation than the game and than the players. We were enamored with the players, 20 feet in front of us, watching the pitchers warm up and seeing our favorite players uh, warm up their arms and stretch. Well, as the game was beginning, the announcer directed our attention across the field to the Stars and Stripes. You know what I'm talking about, the flag waving there in the distance. And as the music began, everyone rose to their feet and reverently listened, mostly reverently listened while my family and I sang loud, along with the playing of our national anthem. That is everyone except my two-year-old daughter. See, it was in that moment when everyone stood up and it's quiet all around that she decided I'm going to make my stand against standing. I'm going to take my stand for the snack that you've been withholding from me. I'm going to take my stand against reverence and respect and honor to our country. Now, to her defense, she's two. She was two. And it was snack time. And as the quiet snowbirds all around us stood listening quietly to the music over the loudspeakers, my daughter was on the ground throwing one of the most impressive tantrums I have ever seen, screaming at the top of her lungs, slamming her feet on the ground, crying out, I want a snack! <laughs> now, what in the world does this have to do with head coverings? Well, more than you might think. What do we see when we examine the scene in Jupiter, Florida, 2020? One, my two-year-old daughter refusing to submit to authority. 
refusing to respect, and a mom and dad slightly embarrassed. I took her out. We won't talk about what happened. We also see an entire assembly of people standing to show honor and respect to a concept of freedom and liberty and alienable rights that our flag and our country represent. Something else interesting happened also. Every single hat-wearing man, including myself, removed their cap in a sign of honor and respect. Now, where in the world does that come from? Why in the world is it a sign in our society, in America, that when we stand and we're honoring the flag in our nation, we remove our caps? Well, you might be interested to know it comes from this passage, believe it or not. Friends, may I suggest that this passage on head coverings is surprisingly relevant, timely, and timeless for us. Consider recent events and current hot topics in our nation. What do we see going on around us? We see abuse of power by those in authority. We see violent protests and anarchy. We see outright disrespect for authority. We also see a recent Supreme Court redefinition of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. Growing support for SOGI laws. Discussions of gender nonconformity, gender dysphoria, and gender fluidity. And we also see the belief, a growing belief, that one's body, one's biology can be and is separate from one's true authentic self. Did you know that all of these issues are addressed in our text today? You may remember that Paul wrote this letter to the followers of Jesus in Corinth who also faced tremendous cultural pressure. Pressure to adopt or maintain the values of their culture. Values such as the cult of celebrity, the acceptance of promiscuity, the sport of publicly dishonoring one another, the lording over others, one's so-called rights, the adoption of pagan worship practices into Christian worship, and interestingly enough, the blurring of gender distinctions. So in light of these pressures, these cultural pressures, it makes sense that they were faced with an inward temptation to let their growing understand, understanding about God and his ways remain just that, an understanding, but not something they practiced. Something that stayed in their head, but didn't translate to their heart, you might say. More specifically, in light of today's passage, they were tempted to doubt the grace of God's order in relationships and in worship. See, we face similar cultural pressures, and so it makes sense that we too might be tempted to doubt God's grace in order in our relationships and in worship. As we come to the text, I want us to ask three questions. Three questions here today. I'm hoping to answer, and I think from these three questions, we're going to see Paul draw out three timeless truths that are true for all time in all places for all people. And the first question, you, you, you'll see them in your bulletin listed out, but it's who is my head? Question two, what is my gender? And question three, what does my gender have to do with my head? So let's, let's dive right in. Who is my head? 
verses two and three, we first see that Paul begins with praise. He, he was a good pastor. You know, before you go into the criticism, you start with the praise, you start with the commendation. Hey, you guys are doing a really great job at this. And this is what he does. He says, I commend you because you remember me in everything. He's telling them, you're doing great at thinking about and understanding the teachings that I brought you when I first came to you. In Acts 18, we, we read about when he first came and he taught them everything about the word of God. He stayed with them for a year and a half. And he says, you're remembering this and you're remembering and maintaining or guarding the traditions that I delivered to you. This is him referring to the teaching that he's received from Jesus. He's delivered to them. And they're doing good at remembering these things in their heads. But the problem is that this understanding has stayed just there and their practices for worship, their practices for life still seem to reflect the culture around them more than they reflect the order of God. And so he moves in in verse three to this problem, you might say, this concern. And he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, what, what does he mean by head? It might be good for us to talk about that for a minute. Uh, it's kephale in the original. It's used nine times in the original in this passage. You'll, if you're using English, if you look at English, you'll count it up more than nine times, but some of those are implied and they're not actually in the original. So I'm just looking at the original nine times. Paul uses it 17 times total in all of his letters. Seven times it's literally talking about a literal head. And 10 times it's talking figuratively, metaphorically speaking. In this passage, we see both. You know, we see shave the head or don't shave the head, and that's literal. Then we also see that Christ is the head of every man. That's figurative because Christ is not on my head. Is he on, you know, like literally speaking right now, right? It's figurative. Although there is some discussion to take the word head to mean source, Based on the immediate and wider context of scripture, I take the word to mean authority. So what we're talking about is this con concept called headship that the Bible talks about. Uh, and speaking about the concept of headship in, in the Bible, New Testament scholar Dr. Simon Kistemacher says this, headship signifies authority, but also includes a reference to origins that affects a continued relationship. That was a lot. Let me break it down for you. Here's my working definition of the concept of head. Head, your head, is the God-given authority to whom you are relationally bound. That's a working definition. Your head is the God-given authority to whom you are relationally bound. Now, I'll note that authority does not mean superiority. Authority does not mean superiority. Maybe an illustration or an analogy will help us as we think about this God-given authority to whom you're relationally bound. And we could just take the picture of the human body. Paul does that later, actually, in this letter. He uses the human body to talk about these things. And every human body has parts, and every human body has a head and a body. And the head can't live a life of full flourishing without the body, right? And the body can't live a, a full life without the head. They need each other. They're inter interdependent. That's a word Paul uh, refers to later. And so what we see here, according to the design of God, the head and the body are relationally bound to one another and they're given specific functions or roles to fulfill. One is not superior to the other, but 
Both are necessary, both have full value and worth and, and dignity, right? So with, with this in mind, we can look then at these three relationships that Paul lays out for us. Relationship number one, the head of every man is Christ. Friends, what this means is that every single man, woman, and child in the world is under the lordship of Jesus. Whether they acknowledge him or not, he's in charge. We, we read in Psalm 8 this morning that he, you have put all things under subjection under his feet. And in 1 Corinthians 15, a few chapters later, Paul re- refers this to Jesus, that when he rose from the dead, the Father put everything under his feet. So the head of everybody is Jesus. He is the God-given authority to whom we are relationally bound by the mere fact that we are his creation. Now more specifically for the church, Jesus is the head of us as a body also. And he gives us specific instructions on how to love him, how to glorify him, how to live a life of obedience out of gratitude for what he's done for us. So that's the first relationship Paul talks about. The second is that head of a wife is her husband. The parallel passage to this is Ephesians 5, and I would encourage you to read it at some point. We won't have time to read the whole thing today. But here's the the main gist of that. Husbands are to pattern their headship after Christ's headship over the church, which means that husbands are the head over their wife They are called to sacrificially love their wife. You'll notice that the word lead is not mentioned in Ephesians 5, although husbands, you're certainly called to lead in your family, but your primary calling is to love, to sacrificially lay down your life for your family. The husband is called to be vitally interested in the welfare of his wife by nourishing and cherishing her. Likewise, wives are called to voluntarily submit to their husband's headship. Wives are called to respect and honor their husbands. Now, I want to say a few words here to you guys out there. And I'm also speaking indirectly to the wives. Men, a biblical understanding of of a husband's headship or authority over his wife does not include any of the following. A domineering abuse of power. Forcing your wife to obey you, discounting your wife's opinion, input, and help, or expecting your wife to wait on you hand and foot. That is not biblical headship. Anything that even smells remotely of male chauvinism is abhorrent and to be vehemently opposed by many who follow Jesus. So, Christ is the head of everybody. Husbands in the divine order are the head of the wife. Third, you doing okay? Everybody doing okay? Still with me? This, this could be hard. This is countercultural, isn't it? Third, the head of Christ is God. Now this refers to the fact that Christ himself submitted to the Father. John 6, 38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In other words, the will of Christ's head, the will of the Father, was that Christ should suffer and die for his people, to pay for their sin. 
And what do we see that Christ does? He voluntarily submits to the God-given authority over him. You notice how Paul begins and ends with Christ? He does this on purpose. Kind of sandwiches in the middle of this one that might be hard for us in, in this horizontal relationship, right? Husbands and wives. And then he begins with Christ. He sets the expectation for what godly headship should look like. How did Christ, how does he rule as a head? He rules as the, the suffering servant, right? He rules as the one who laid down his life. And then he also gives us this, and the head of Christ is God, showing us how did Christ submit? What's the expectation of godly submission to your head look like? Jesus gives us the picture of both, friends. So who is your head? Your head is the God-given authority to whom you're relationally bound. All of us are relationally bound to our head and therefore we have roles within that relationship that God has given us. Now, interestingly enough, according to God's design, these roles are intertwined with our God-given gender, which leads to the second question, what's my gender? Now, I don't know if 15 years ago, maybe even five years ago, we would even have to have this discussion right now. But we need to have this discussion right now. The climate in our culture demands it. And so we're going to take a few minutes to talk about what's my gender. In a recent New York Times opinion piece that came out just this past Tuesday, titled Sex Does Not Mean Gender, the, article, the author proposes that the terms male and female are, quote, in the author's words, these words, male and female, are words for bodies, not for people with hearts and souls and minds. What the author is proposing is that an aspect of your physical makeup can be separated from who you truly and authentically are. That you can divide your body, if you will, from your, your true self, is what the author is proposing. This is a secular worldview, which is gaining tremendous momentum. And sadly, it's infiltrating even the evangelical church. The separation of body from heart, mind, and soul. We've separated the two. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, I think Paul does. That's why I'm bringing it up. How many times, if you go back through, does he mention man, woman, husband, wife, men, women? If we look to verses 7 to 9, we see Paul goes back to creation. He says, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now what he's doing here is he's taking us back to creation so that he can establish something about men and women. He can establish a few things. We're only going to be able to talk about a couple of them. One of them is he wants to take us back to creation to establish that men and women, Genesis 1 says this, are made in the image of God. God created man, male and female, after his own image. And knowledge and righteousness and holiness. And since man was created first, he is not to, in this case, to cover his head. We'll get to what that looks like later. Just hang tight. 
The second thing we see is that man was not made from woman, but woman from man. This is verse 8. What this is referring to is of what or how did God create man? God created Adam's body out of the ground, the dust of the ground, and Eve's body out of a rib from Adam. Okay? They were both made from the dust and from flesh. What this means is they are physical bodies, flesh and bone. In fact, Adam even says, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. They are physically male and female. Not just a, a spirit that's in, that has the image of God, if you will, on them, in them, intrinsically part of them. They're also flesh and bone and skin. And that is a part of who they are. But you'll notice that they are distinct. They are not the same. Their biological parts are distinct. They're not the same. Their roles are distinct. Verse 9 gets to the role aspect. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. You may remember in Genesis 2.18, Adam's there. He's given the command to work the garden, to name the animals. And God says the only thing that's not good is that Adam's alone. Everything else is good. He says, but it's not good that, that Adam's alone. So I'm going to make him a helper. I'm going to make someone to help him. And that's when he sends him into a deep sleep, takes a rib out of him and creates woman for him. Not to serve him in a, in a you know, like that he's lording over her, but in a way that they together are going to have their roles and work complementing one another to fulfill the mandate God gave them, which is to rule over the earth, to reflect the glory of God, and to reign as his people. Still with me? Still with me? You'll notice that Adam and Eve were given authority, and I'm just going to gander a, a guess at verse 10. Verse 10 is tough in this passage. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. There's a lot of different takes. This could be that the angels are watching us when we worship, and they hold us accountable, and so we, we need to show submission to our authority because they're watching the other could be that God has, you know, you could translate angels as messengers. So God has sent messengers, meaning, you know, your elders, if you will, who are over the church, the, you know, the, the, you know, they're the leaders, the officers, and you're accountable to them. So you should show a sign of authority. There's a third option that I think I'm going to go with. Those two options are good options too. The third option I'm going to go with is that I believe verse 10 is speaking about the fact that women have also been given authority over creation with man. And I, I, I see this because of the context. Verse 11 goes right into the fact that men and women are not independent of each other. They're dependent upon each other, meaning one's not superior to the other. And so I think he's saying, women, you are to put a sign of authority on your head because you are even in authority over the angels. Angels are created beings. They don't have God's image upon them like we do. They're not image bearers. And so Paul is elevating the role and status of women lest we be tempted to think, hey, woman came from me and is for me. He says, well, women, put the sign of authority on your head because you have authority over creation, including angels. I like that. I don't know. You can... You can decide. I'm looking at Ron. He's like my resident theologian here. He's not shaking his head, so we're good. Not yet. 
And, you'll, and you, then you see, and I mentioned this already, verses 10 and 11, 11 and 12, excuse me, that men and women are interdependent upon each other. So, because we want to get to the real, the real fun part here, what are we supposed to put on our head here? So what's your gender? According to what Paul is saying here, your gender is intrinsically connected to your whole person, body, mind, soul, spirit. Your gender and your biological, biological sex are one and the same. Your biological sex should be a clue to your gender. You cannot separate them. They are in harmony with one another according to scripture. And this is good and this is for the glory of God. So truth one, your head is the God-given authority to whom you're relationally bound. Truth two, your gender is connected to your whole person and it cannot be separated, body, heart, soul, mind. Question three. What does my gender have to do with my head? Okay. Still with me? I don't see anyone throwing on head coverings, so you haven't, haven't... Well, we'll see what happens here. Paul says in verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, praying and prophesying, and then he mentions every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Praying and prophesying here, uh, the context suggests that Paul's talking about an activity in corporate worship, praying where we respond to God's word and praise and, and thanksgiving and confession and, and adoration, much of what we do when we sing and when we pray and when we confess our sins. We are praying, really, is what we're doing. Prophesying refers to the reading, teaching, and explaining of God's word. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, like, does this mean Paul's contradicting himself because just three chapters later, he says that women are to remain silent in church. I don't think, in fact, I know Paul's not contradicting himself because Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit cannot contradict himself, right? What I think is happening is that Paul is dealing with one thing at a time. Right now, his primary focus is talking about authority and how do we submit to and embrace who we are and our gender. And then he's going to get to, now, how do we behave as men and women in the church now that we've got this authority piece taken care of? That's, that's the definition, the way I'm going to go, the interpretation. You may disagree with me. That's okay. We can disagree. We can still be friends, Right? Now, what's the covering that Paul talks about? We see that Paul connects the activity of public worship to this idea of covering or uncovering your head as a sign of submission to your God-given authority. Now, there's two main views, and I'm going to give you the two main views. The one view is that the, the covering is piling up your, for women to pile up the hair on top of their head like a bun. We're going to call that the bun view. There it is. Anyone, my grandmother... Bun, right? Piled it up. And that's, that's one view. I would say for various reasons, including that we don't see this practice existing in Jewish culture in first AD, that I don't think this is what the covering is, is piling up the hair, you know? The other main view is that the, the covering is an actual covering, a piece of cloth uh, on top of the head, maybe a, a veil, the verb used refers to an actual covering and then you see the context Paul is saying for men to, you know, not cover their heads, which seems to, you know, we wouldn't think that he meant for men to go shave their head bald so that they wouldn't have any, you know, covering on their head. So it seems to indicate that there's some sort of piece of cloth being involved, right? 
I think that's the right reading of the text. In any case, here's the point. Women are to adorn themselves in a certain way that men are not. Women are to be distinguishable from men and men are to be distinguishable from women. That's the point that Paul's trying to make here. When you come together to worship, make sure that you are distinguishing your genders from one another. Now, why does that matter? Because when we embrace our gender that God has given us, we also embrace the role that he has given us within his order. Women, when you embrace your gender, when you act like a woman, when you dress like a woman, when you carry yourself like a woman, you embrace the authority that God has placed over you. If you're a wife, you're husband. If you're not a wife, you're single. God, Christ. For all the members of the church, the elders. Men, when you embrace your gender, when you act like men, when you embrace your masculinity, you are showing that you submit to the authority of Christ and you submit to the divine role that he's given you in the world. Men and women are called to honor their head by embracing their gender. Now in 1st A.D. Corinth, 1st century A.D. Corinth, embracing your gender and honoring your head had something to do with covering and not covering your head. There's a few practices that exist. Uh, Wives in their culture wore some kind of covering in public as a sign of submission to their husbands. Also, interestingly enough, uh, men who worshipped pagan gods, when they would go to worship, they would pull their toga up over their head and cover their head as they prayed and worshipped their false god, their pagan god. You'll also note that promiscuous women had their head shaved as a sign of their impropriety in that culture. So it makes sense then that Paul would say it's a disgrace for a wife to cut off her hair, to shave her head. That would have been a sign that she had not submitted to her husband through her adultery and that now she's blurring the lines of gender because she has short hair and she might be confused for a man. This brings me to the comments that Paul makes in the end of the passage in verses 13 to 15. See, Paul asked two rhetorical questions having to do with customs and natural God-given instincts among men and women. In verse 13, he says, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? I believe what he's talking about is in our culture, in first century Corinth, is it proper for a wife to do this with her head uncovered? And the answer is no, it's not. The second question he says then is, doesn't nature itself, that is what is instinctively and commonly practiced by men and women, doesn't nature teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? Why is it a disgrace? Because he's looking like a woman in that culture. If a man had long hair, he would be possibly mistaken for a woman. And Paul says that's a disgrace. You're blurring the gender distinctions here. And Paul goes on, verse uh, 15... (laughs) But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory because she is distinguishing herself as a woman who has not been in propriety, not been promiscuous, but has submitted willingly and voluntarily and has her hair long. Now, before you all start to go to wonder if I'm going to tell all the long-haired guys here today to cut your hair and all the short-haired women to start growing it out, I don't think that's the point. 
I don't think the point is your hairstyle. I think the point is that it's a disgrace to yourself and dishonoring to your head to blur the lines of gender. In other words, men and women are to honor their head by embracing your gender and expressing your gender in a way that your culture will understand. Does that make sense? That might include head coverings. You might be in a culture where women put head coverings on as a sign of submission. You might be part of a church that decides we as a church are going to make a stand against the blurring of gender distinctions going on in our world and we're going to ask the women in our church to voluntarily wear head coverings. That would be okay for a church to do that. I don't think you have to do that. What I think you have to do is men and women need to act and live like men and women that God made them to be. We know that the expression of one's gender changes from culture to culture over time, doesn't it, right? I mean, think of Scottish men in their kilts, right? That's like a dress. You know, I just mentioned men in togas. That's like a big flowing robe. If I came in wearing that, that would be a little strange. I don't know that anyone would question if I was a guy or not, but they might. I don't know. Or take my grandmother, for instance, never wore a pair of pants a day in her life because it was improper. Pants were for men, not for women. So she didn't do that. Now, how many women today have pants on? I don't think you're not being a woman of wearing pants because our culture doesn't seem to see that as an indicator anymore of womanhood and manhood, right? But the point is that we are to boldly live out the distinctions by our gender, embracing that as a way of showing that we are submitting to the authority that God has placed over us. The implications in terms of practical application are going to vary then, especially in our culture right now that is very confused about gender things. So let's wrap this up. There is much confusion today in our world surrounding gender and gender roles. A friend of mine recently called me. Godly man, godly home, loves Jesus, follows Jesus, gospel-centered, raised his kids to follow Jesus, gave them the word, taught them the word. And his son, his grown son, called him, actually came to him and and his wife, um, my friend and his wife, and their son came to him and said, I think I'm a she. You see, friends, whether you realize it or not, there are many in our world that are confused right now about these fundamental things. What are we going to do? How do we respond as a church? I would offer that we are to embrace the God-given gender that we have and live and, and express that. Not in an immodest way, mind you. Men, when you submit to Christ, not really express your submission by embracing your manhood, you give glory to God and you show the world that you trust him. Wives, when you submit to your husbands and outwardly express your submission by embracing your femininity, you give glory to God and show the world that you trust Jesus. To every man, woman, and child, married or not, you show honor to Christ when you embrace the way he has made you, including your biological sex, which points to your gender. 
Lastly, I'll remind you that Christ himself, the head of everyone, submitted to the will of the Father and laid down his life because that was the role God gave him. And he did this to bring glory and honor to the Father. And he did this to redeem us, broken and sinful people. You see, your gender is a gift and it is a sign of God's grace. And when we embrace our God-given gender, we honor Christ and we give glory to the God of grace whom we worship. Why don't we pray? Why don't we pray? Father, Lord, we thank you that you, that you're good. And we thank you that with passages like this, which can go in a lot of different directions, that you can still unify us. Help us, Lord, that we might not take these words and see ways to be contentious or have strife with one another, but that we might willingly, in all of us, submit to Christ and to the order he's given us and embrace the way you've made us, for it is good. And it is a gift from you. And when we embrace the way you made us, we more fully reflect your image and your glory. We love you, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.